With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. And I'm Vicky. And I am so excited for you guys to hear all of these amazing stories. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, this episode gonna is going to be explosive. Insert, I would say, kaboom noise here. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Every time we say explosive, kaboom, or bomb, I want to hear explosions. <laughs> oh God. Tiff, I hope you're ready. This is, this is going to be one exciting, it's going to be like an action film. I, that's exactly how I envisioned it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh, yes. Uh, well, <laughs> we've got a great show for you this week. Um, certain to be fun, I'm sure. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our news comes from the Australian Broadcasting Company. And so we're in Australia, where authorities have been on the lookout for who they have dubbed the Big Bird Bandits. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in April, a $160,000 Big Bird costume was stolen from the Sesame Street Circus Spectacular at Bonathan Park. A few days after it had been stolen, the costume was found leaning up against an electricity box with a note in the beak that said, quote, we had no idea what we were doing or what our actions would cause. We were just having a rough time and were trying to cheer ourselves up. We had a great time with Mr. Bird. He's a great guy and no harm came to our friend. Sorry to be such a big burden. Oh. Sincerely. This is the puns I'm waiting Spelled for. Spelled B-I-R-D-E-N. <laughs> <laughs> Sincerely, the Big Bird Bandits. Oh my god. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yes. 
Now, following this discovery, two men were arrested, 22-year-old Tasman Binder and 26-year-old Cody Milne, um, who have already appeared in court on charges of theft and unlawfully being on premises. And really quick, where is my screen share? I need to show you Uh this, this picture. Okay. Not that picture. (laughs) These are the guys... These are the two guys. Can you see this? They look like actors playing people. Like <laughs> they're both in like so they both have blazers on and they're in white turtlenecks. It's choice. One of them is like a khaki blazer, the other one is like a it almost looks like an animal print. Yeah. But I'm not honestly sure. It does. And it looks they like have a snake very print. similar Yeah. I I couldn't tell you what that is. They have amazing glasses. One guy has an exquisite blonde mullet. (laughs) And both of them have like, like porn stashes. They look like a really hip happening band. (laughs) Yes. This was like, I saw this picture was like, wait, is this from the past? Is this real? Is this from 1975? Where am I? (laughs) This is from where the, when they showed up to court. Oh my God. It really does look like they're like a seventies pop band. (laughs) from australia it's it's wild anyway so they recently just arrested a third suspect a 20 year old woman who's also been charged with theft it sounds like there was some video um some cctv footage that was returned it released well kind of get over they left it to be found it's it's like they didn't set it on fire. They didn't fucking. And how long was it gone for? Like a hot minute? Just a cut, like two days. See, so like get out of here, Australian fucking government with your bullshit. I mean, it's a very expensive costume. It's made from ostrich feathers, and it was flown in from New York for the show. So <sighs> whatever, you know. <laughs> People be dumb. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why. I'm not sure. Anyway, they returned it. That's I just all thought that, that was interesting. But yeah. If a if a criminal says sorry, I'm fine. It's fine. <laughs> and they made a great it's a fine. great <laughs> great pun play on right? words in their exactly. note that they left. That's like double points. A burden. Mm-hmm. That was so funny. I love it. <laughs> All right, moving on to Netflix and Kill. This week we're talking about Surfy, Surfy. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sophie, a murder in West Cork. This is a three part documentary series on Netflix that looks at the death of French television producer Sophie Toscan du Plantier, who was also married to a well known movie producer, Daniel Toscan du Plantier. In 1996, Sophie was violently murdered in her Irish vacation home in West Cork right before Christmas. Because this was the death of a relatively famous white woman, the media at the time sort of sucked up the story. Oh, yeah. And especially Irish media. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And in so in 96, this is still at the time of like really tabloidy sort of coverage mm-hmm. of this type of thing also the the really small town of west cork itself became somewhat of a sensation to reporters and tourists that just like descended on this town after this happened 
The investigation finally narrowed in on British journalist Ian Bailey, who was arrested twice with no charges brought. And following that, he filed a number of lawsuits, both libel and uh, like a wrongful arrest lawsuit, Mm -hmm. um, none of which he was able to take to court. And then in 2019, Bailey was charged and tried in Paris for the murder, receiving 25 years in prison. He was actually charged and tried in absentia, which means that he wasn't actually there, uh, there mm-hmm. for his trial because uh, Ireland's highest court ruled in 2020 that he was not allowed to be extradited, mm-hmm. which is like kind of an interesting turn of events. So it's it's... A well put together story, not super long. It, I think, is interesting with the twists and turns, but definitely, I think, garnered a lot more coverage than other things that were happening because of the victim, who the victim <laughs> was. I think it's worth checking out, though. Um, I don't know. Have you watched this yet? Yeah, I did see it. And I almost stopped watching it. Because the first episode was so fucking boring. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. It was so boring, I almost turned it off. I was like, I gotta, I gotta finish it. But it's only three episodes. I know, but it was so slow. Okay. The thing about Ireland is that everything is very, like, calm and gentle. So, like, the first episode is very, like, calm and gentle. And, like, lulls you. Almost to fucking sleep. So, it was like, what are... What is going on? This is, I like literally almost fell asleep. I'm like, I gotta turn this off. This isn't. This is not for me. But then, yeah. But then I was like, ugh. I'm I'm hoping it'll get better, <laughs> and it did. But it was still like very slow and drawn out. That Ian Bailey yeah. guy is very interesting to listen to. The way yeah. he talks, you could totally tell he was a reporter. Yeah. He's he's sensational, and he like spins a yarn. It's a lot. Oh God. Yeah. A born storyteller. <laughs> exactly. As all Irish oh. folk are want to be. <laughs> yeah, right. So that is uh, Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. It's on Netflix right now. You can check it out. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be discussing instances of child death, uh, which I know is triggering for some people. Anarchy. That's no, just mine. Anarchy. <laughs> anarchy yes, raging the against the government. <laughs> but, Chanel, what are we talking about today? Well, I gave you a hint earlier, but we're going to be talking about all things that go kaboom! Or otherwise known as crimes with explosives. <laughs> so, I, you know, I love to bring the lighthearted fun to these episodes. <laughs> yes. So all of mine lately have been kind of like, Weird and interesting. Not totally devoid of murder, but pretty close. <laughs> this is one of those rare instances where, like, you and I were thinking on the same wavelength with an episode. Yes. Vicky was like, I'm thinking about doing something with explosives. Yeah. I was like, well, you're in store for, you're in store for it because I already selected that. <laughs> I was like, nice. Okay. All right. Same page. <laughs> yes. So I am going to take us back again in the Wayback Time Machine to the same time period we were in the last episode about <laughs> because i can't get out of the late 1800s early 1900s that's fair i believe mine took up took place around this time too so 
I fell into an old timey hole and I can't get out. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about the time period after the civil war had ended and after like the big, big push of the industrial revolution. And we're moving into this period that's really emphasized by like revolution in and of itself. Now, This is going to be the 1910 Los Angeles Times bombing case. Okay. The time period, if you remember, at all from your history classes, there was a lot of workers still fighting for, like, basic human rights. And this was the beginning of times when unions were starting to form everywhere. There were strikes and riots happening across the U.S. People were fighting to unionize, and they were fighting for the eight-hour workday. And I've mentioned this before. In 1886, there was the bombing of the Haymarket riot that took place. And this was like a really big moment in labor history. Yes. It was a peaceful protest. It turned violent when a bomb was thrown at the police, who were literally beating people to death. (laughs) So, like, kind of deserved This particular protest took place on May Day, which is now known as International Workers' Day. And they were really fighting for the eight-hour workday. And this event would spark hundreds of riots across the U.S. like this until the 1920s. Yeah. So a lot of people are not really familiar with all of the little things that went on during this time period in terms of workers' rights. Like, you work an eight-hour workday because of that fucking problem. Like, like, because people gathered in the Haymarket and fought for people not to work 12 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, the workers were in bloody battles over the working conditions. There's a great... Uh, they did a great series on this on Behind the Bastards, I think about sort of mm-hmm. the labor revolution. Um, that's yeah. definitely something. If, if you're not familiar, read up on it, because it's a very interesting history. Yes. And I mean, being the benevolent anarchist that I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that appealed to me when I was a teenager, because I worked multiple jobs when I was in high school, and I tried my damnedest to support myself and go to school and do all the things. and. You know, I've worked lots of lots of different jobs. So this kind of movement is very important to me and special. And it resonates still today. I mean, look at the labor issues we have right now. It's not a shortage. It's people realizing that they don't want to work and be beaten down and have no insurance and have to rely on a company to take care of them. Right. You know, like, this is still relevant today. <laughs> right. It's not a labor shortage, it's a wage shortage. Exactly. So, this tale, this this major next bombing, the 1910 bombing of the Los Angeles Times, is all because of of this movement. We'll kind of start at the beginning, and we'll talk about the formation of the Iron Workers Union. Um, and I took this little excerpt from their website, because I think it nicely wraps everything up in a little bow. In the late 1880s, steel had virtually replaced wood and stone as the primary load-carrying material in the erection of bridges and buildings. This abrupt change in structural materials brought about a demand for a new type of worker bridgemen and architectural iron workers. Iron workers became known as the cowboys in the sky. And these daring young independent men aged and became husbands and providers, 
Their thoughts turn to providing for their families during sickness, injury, and death, and the realization by joining together, their voices became stronger, unified, and heard. Thus, the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers of America was established on February 4, 1896, by 16 delegates who attended our founding convention in Pittsburgh. Now, this is important because the Iron Workers Union is the first major cross-country union that happened in this this country. Like, it is the first one that took on broad, sweeping movement to make sure that there was a union in every state. Yeah. Within a year of their formation, the iron workers had almost unionized every single steel worker in the U.S. Now, the true villains of this story are actually the U.S. Steel and American Bridge Company. This ultra-mega monopoly formed the National Erectors Association, which was a coalition of steel and iron industry employers who were hell-bent on busting unions and ensuring that companies could hire whoever they want and provide whatever benefits they want and do whatever the fuck they want to everybody. Mm, Sounds great. (laughs) Sounds amazing, right? They often used private detectives, strike breakers, labor spies, and even agent provocateurs to commit acts of violence against unions. Now, if you're not familiar with what an agent provocateur is, is it's basically someone that is sent in to start a riot, to start violence, and then all that violence will be blamed on the people who are trying to change and have a union. Yes. I'm forgetting. There's People use a lot of, like, uh, actors and things in in terminology now. Yeah. Somebody who goes into incite Mm -hmm. Incite violence. So by 1910, U.S. Steel had almost succeeded in driving unions out of their company. Unions in other iron manufacturing companies also started to vanish, and only the iron workers held out. So they decided to take a note from the Chicago riots. Beginning in 1906, national and local officials of the iron workers launched a dynamite campaign. Kaboom, kaboom, dynamite campaign. (laughs) Are you ready? You ready for this? There's going to be so much blowing up. Okay, here we go. Between 1906 and 1911, the iron workers blew up 110 ironworks. Very little damage was done to the properties because, well, it's fucking steel. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So then in 1910, the strikes took hold of Los Angeles. Harrison Gray Otis, who was the publisher of the Los Angeles Times, was vehemently opposed to all forms of unions. His first foray into this was about 20 years earlier, and Otis had joined and seized control of the local Merchants Association in 1896. If you're keeping track of dates, this is the same time when the Iron Workers Union was officially voted. Okay. Now, remaining the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, they used it and kind of like put it in the newspaper and circulated it and started to create this like campaign and he spearheaded it. And they wanted to end unions in the city. Now, the Times had been the most vocal opponent of local, like, labor union activity in Los Angeles in the 1900s. Okay. And during the previous summer in 1909, the city saw several waves of labor strikes. So on June 1st, 1910, 1,500 iron workers struck iron manufacturers in the city to win a 50 cent an hour minimum wage. Now, that sounds insane. But this is like 13 bucks by 2018 dollars. Okay. So on par with like what 
a lot of the labor rights is doing now. Right. They also wanted to get overtime pay because when you worked over your hours, you didn't get paid time and a half or anything like that. You just got your standard wage. Yeah. Now, the local business leaders were not happy with this, and the M&M raised $350,000 to break the strike. The M&M is the abbreviation for Merchant Manufacturers Association. They like called it the M&M. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be $9.3 million that they raised to break a fucking strike. You have $9 million to break a strike, but you don't have enough money to pay your workers 50 cents an hour. Hmm. Interesting. 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 People wonder why we get after uh, all of these millionaires and billionaires. Amazon. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> interesting. Yes. In response, Otis, along with the local business leaders, compelled Los Angeles City Council and Mayor George Alexander to impose an anti-picketing ordinance and give police authority to arrest picketers and persons, quote, speaking in public streets in loud or unusual tones. That's not, like, broad or anything. That's me every day. I know. (laughs) Loud (laughs) loud and unusual tones. (laughs) Hello. So the LAPD rounded up hundreds of labor activists, as they do, And the penalty for each person was either 50 days in jail or a $100 fine. And sometimes, if they fought back, they'd get both. On June 3rd, 1910, the head of the labor union wrote a letter to a man named J.J. McNamara, and it stated, Now, Joe, what I want to hear, what I want here is Hawken. This was a request to bring Herbert Hawken to L.A. Because he was the union's official dynamite bombing expert okay (laughs) they had one of those (laughs) however herbert hawken had been caught taking money set aside for bombing jobs and jj mcnamara was like i can't trust this guy anymore so mcnamara asked another gentleman named jack barry but jack barry also turned down the job when he learned who the target was so In a pinch, McNamara finally settled on hiring his young brother, James B. McNamara. On the evening of September 30th, 1910, J.B. McNamara left a suitcase full of dynamite in the narrow alley between the Times Building and the Times Annex, known as Ink Alley. The suitcase was left near barrels of flammable printer's ink and... This is an excerpt from an anniversary edition of the Times that described the event, and I thought it was pretty good. Quote, shortly after 1 a.m. on October 1st, 1910, a hundred years ago, Friday, a time bomb constructed of 16 sticks of 80% dynamite connected to a cheap wind-up alarm clock exploded in an alley next to the Los Angeles Times. It detonated with such violence that for blocks around, people ran panic-stricken into the streets, believing that an intense earthquake had hit the city. The explosion destroyed the Times building, taking the lives of 20 employees, including the Night City editor and the principal telegraph operator, and maiming dozens of others. Two other time bombs intended to kill General Harris Gray Otis, the publisher of the newspaper, and Felix J. Z. Handler, the head of the Los Angeles business organization, were discovered later that morning, hidden in the bushes next to their homes. Their mechanisms had jammed. Now, the attack didn't stop the issue of October 1st, 1910's Times coming out. They actually went across to Los Angeles Herald 
and printed it. So it's like some serious Citizen Kane vibes happening here. They're like, we're still going to print this. Oh, my God. How nice of them. Even after their building exploded and 20 people that worked for them died. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, you couldn't take one day off to deal with the fucking explosion in your building. Right? The news doesn't stop. 24-hour news cycle. (laughs) Jeez, yeah. The start of it for (laughs) sure. So, in an attempt to calm the public, the Times and law enforcement jointly announced that the perpetrators would be caught immediately. They're like, we're going to get these guys right now. Unfortunately, weeks passed and no arrests were made, and they didn't even have a suspect list, which I find very interesting. So, eventually, the city of Los Angeles decided to post a $25,000 reward for the capture of the bombers, and then the M&M raised another $50,000 to also be given out if they could catch these people. In October, later that month, Los Angeles Mayor George Alexander hired a private detective named William J. Burns. Now, Burns had already been investigating the nationwide bombings that were connected to the unions. The Iron Workers Union at this time decided it was time for more bombings in Los Angeles. They're like, let's go for it. Oh, boy. And so they sent another man, Ordy McGonagall, with a list of five bombing targets. This including the Times Auxiliary Printing Plant, the Lewin Iron Works, and the Baker Iron Works, and two non-union construction sites, which were the Los Angeles County Hall of Records and the Hotel Alexandria. They intended to blow these babies up on Christmas Day. Wow. That's a statement. That That is a big statement. Now, that winter, McGonagall and McNamara took a hunting trip, and on this trip, reportedly, McNamara bragged about the Times bombing in the middle of a hunting lodge. Now, oh my God. Burns, the private investigator, had already hired a few spies to follow them and was able to track down the masterminds because... They bragged about it. (laughs) You never brag about it. Yes, don't. Keep it quiet. Zip your lip. Mm -hmm. On April 14th, 1911, Burns, Burns' son, Raymond, and police officers from Detroit and Chicago went to the Oxford Hotel in Detroit, where they were at, and arrested McGonagall and McNamara. They found dynamite, blasting caps, and alarm clocks in their suitcases. Oh, shit. (laughs) Not a good look, boys. Now, Burns convinced McGonagall that he knew everything and that he could save himself by cutting a deal. So McGonagall agreed and signed a confession, and he stated that he had not participated in the Times bombing, but that Jim McNamara had told him about it and that it was done by Jim McNamara and two others, Matthew Schmidt and David Kaplan. McGonagall also said that others involved, including the union president, Ryan, J.J. McNamara, Hawken, and other ironworker leaders. Now, Schmidt and Kaplan actually evaded arrest until about 1915. They were like, bye, and they bounced on out of there. <laughs> but unfortunately, J.J. was arrested in April. Now, the district attorney's office in the city launched an aggressive investigation into this accident. And the acclaimed investigator that we had just talked about was really focusing on trying to figure out the connections between McNamara, McGonagall, all of these things. And it was causing a little bit of problem because the iron workers were getting a little suspicious of all of this. And they really like held fast and stood behind these guys. Okay. After the McNamara's were 
um, arrested and extradited to Los Angeles. They both pled not guilty. And the national labor movement rallied to the defense of the brothers. And the laborers insisted that the brothers were being framed to discredit the labor movement in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. so this is what they were releasing to the public. They were like, this is a frame yeah. job. Now, they decided that they were going to raise enough money to hire a defense attorney. And they actually were like, you know what? Let's uh, see what Clarence Darrow's doing. And they asked him to take the case for the McNamaras. Now, if you're not familiar with Clarence Darrow mm-hmm. is, Darrow is the famed lawyer who was part of the Snopes trial, which argued whether or not the evolution theory should be taught in schools. Okay. Is it ringing a bell now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in fact, in To Kill a Mockingbird, the, the main character lawyer was fashioned after Clarence Darrow. Gotcha. Okay. All of the things. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yes. So after a lot of convincing, Clarence Darrow decided to take the case. Now, at this time, he was actually in really ill health, and he believed that in his heart of hearts, these men were actually guilty. And he wasn't sure if he should take the case still because he was personally conflicted about it. Eventually, he kind of came to his senses and he's like, everyone needs a good defense. No matter what I feel, no matter if I if the evidence really does to me look like they're guilty, everyone needs a good defense. I can respect that. Yeah. During the court case, there was a lot of violent clashes over strikes, uh, mostly aimed at iron workers and the like. And it doesn't help that a lot of the people involved in these movements were immigrants, uh, specifically Italian, Jewish, and Russian. These people lived in countries who did far worse things to their workers um, while they lived there, which is why when they came to the U.S., they fought super fucking hard to make sure labor and workers were headed in a different direction Makes in the sense. United States. But it also prompted a lot of people who considered themselves like born and bred true blue Americans to act out against anyone who's of these ethnicities or who worked for these particular jobs. So we have a lot of people beating Italian immigrants in the street, beating Jewish people, beating Russian people, kicking people out of their tenement buildings just because they thought they were associated with an iron workers union. Yeah. It was like not a great time. Yeah. <laughs> the iron workers were really trying to take care of their people and they were like this is this is a scam job this is what happened they contended that burns had engaged in kidnapping misrepresentation of his status as a law enforcement officer and unlawful imprisonment and handling of mcgonagall and mcnamara the defense blamed the la times explosion on an accidental ignition of a gas leak and denied that dynamite was in any way involved They stated that the evidence found at the site of the rubble and at the union headquarters was planted. And to support the accidental gas explosion theory, the State Federation of Labor of California appointed a committee to travel to Los Angeles to investigate. And the committee included a number of miners who are experts in explosives. Hmm. The committee reported back that there were no signs of a dynamite explosion at the Times building and that it was solely a gas explosion. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Very interesting. Now, the McNamara's were arraigned on May 5th, 1911. As jury selection started, Darrow and Associates worked on obtaining a plea deal. 
Now, after some resistance, the brothers finally agreed to the plea deal. And on December 1st, 1911, the McNamara brothers uh, changed their pleas in an open court to guilty. James McNamara admitted to murder by having set the bomb that destroyed the Los Angeles Times building. And John McNamara settled settled for court and admitted that he had ordered the bombing. And he ordered the bombing of Lewin Ironworks on December 25th. John received 15 years because he just ordered the hits, and James received life in prison. Okay. As part of the McNamara brothers' plea bargain, Los Angeles prosecutors had agreed not to pursue other labor union officials for the L.A. bombings. But the federal government was not party to the agreement, and so in 1912, they brought charges against 54 union men mostly national and local offices of the Iron Workers Union, for the involvement in a five-year nationwide campaign of dynamite! That's how they worded it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, because such things as murder or destruction of property were not, like, federal crimes, there's, like, a weird way they kind of, like, got around this. The defendants were charged with federal crimes of conspiracy to illegally transport dynamite on railroad trains instead. There was some sort of way that the defense was able to argue against them to get it to illegal transport of dynamite. Okay. It's creative charging is what that is. It's creative charging. In the 1900s, the U.S. law system was still all kinds of fucked. There was a lot of fuckery happening. Oh, yeah. But it's kind of like the way they got a lot of gangsters on tax evasion and not actual murder. They were yeah. like, we got this evidence. This will do. Yeah. So 38 men out of the 54 men that were charged in total were convicted to some degree in the dealings. On July 4th, 1914, a dynamite bomb exploded in New York's tenement apartment building occupied by three anarchists. Okay. All three men died in the explosion, which destroyed the building and killed a woman in the next apartment and injured dozens more. Um, This is important because it shows the network of bombings that were happening. Right. Police speculated that the bomb was intended to be used the following day in Terrytown, New York, where a number of anarchists, including one of the dead bombers, were due to face charges connected with the attempted invasion of the Rockefeller estate as part of their five-year bombing campaign. The incident didn't seem connected originally to the Iron Workers building because it was mostly like anarchists, like staunch anarchists, not necessarily iron workers. Yeah. But Burns, the investigator who was called out for the LA bombing, was also involved in this, and he learned that the fragments of the bomb showed similar construction to the LA Times bombs. And he found that Matthew Schmidt, one of the ones who got away, was at the scene when the New York City policemen were at this bombing in New York. And so Schmidt was arrested on February 13th, 1915. Okay. Now, if you remember, Schmidt was one of the ones who was involved in the L.A. bombings and yes. that got away. Yeah. Burns' agents had kept a watch out um, on Schmidt, and they were hoping to also arrest Kaplan. But finally just settled, you know, we got Schmidt, it's fine. But then... A search of Schmidt's belongings, they found a letter. And that letter led them to Seattle, where they found fucking David Kaplan. 
local police arrested Kaplan on February 18, 1915. Schmidt and Kaplan were tried separately in Los Angeles. Matthew Schmidt was convicted of murder in December 1915 and received life imprisonment. Kaplan's first trial ended in a deadlocked jury. And then in December of 1916, full year later, a second jury found him guilty of second-degree manslaughter. The court sentenced him to 10 years in prison, but he was released in 1923 after serving only six and a half years for good behavior. Okay. Now, Darrow was actually indicted as well on two charges of jury tampering around this time. Oh, God. Relating to the case. His chief investigator turned state's evidence even implicated Samuel Gompers of the AFL, which was the American Federation of Labor, in a bribery attempt. Now, the AFL had paid for Darrow to represent the men, and Darrow was acquitted in his first trial because the evidence was kind of shoddy, and it was a lot of hearsay. Okay. Now, when charges were brought in the second bribery case, the trial again ended in a hung jury. A lot of people had difficult time with convicting him because of his status. Even though there was a witness that said he was also involved, what wound up happening was that one of the people that worked for him thought it might be a good idea to try to bribe a juror. Darrow wasn't directly involved, but someone that worked for him was. Gotcha. But they tried to get them all. And what wound up happening is they got none. So, hmm. <laughs> so Ordy McGonigal served two and a half years in prison before I'm being released on parole. J.B. McNamara refused to file any uh, parole request while he was in prison. And he died of cancer in San Quentin on March 9th, 1941. He was like, I'm just going to be in jail. That's it. All right, then. Now, J.J. McNamara, on the other hand, left prison after serving only nine years. And the Iron Workers Union welcomed him back as an organizer. So he was like, you did a great job. You blew up all these buildings for us. Come on back. Okay. He was eventually, again, convicted of a crime. He was convicted of threatening the destruction of a building unless the contractor hired union members. And guess what? He got sent back to prison. Well. <laughs> oh, once shame on you. Twice shame on me. I know. It's like, can't change so, a tiger's stripes, right? Right. He, again, was released. But the union actually discovered that he, embe- he had embezzled $200. And they fired him. Ooh. So then JJ, without his life's work, um, spent the rest of his life drifting from job to job and died in Butte, Montana on May 8th, 1941, only a few months after his brother. Damn, he really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, but I also put a picture down here of the this the hole where the Times building used to be. Um, if you wanted to oh take my a look gosh, at how. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, they really, they fucked it up. Yeah. Holy moly. The it's building just like the was whole, leveled. Whole it looks like a fucking section. scene from 9-11. It is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the bombing of the Times building. So, hooray. For anarchy? <laughs> I don't know. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So recently, our audio producer Tiff and I went on a little like road trip around Michigan. Murdercation? Um, kind of. It so it originally, yeah. It originally was supposed to be like um one of those trips where you kind of drive around and see some of those weird road sign attractiony kind of things that you normally wouldn't stop at. I've always wanted to do that, but what I failed to realize until like just a little bit before we were leaving is that Michigan is also a has a huge hard cider industry, which. Oh yeah. If you I guys can that. I know. Well it just for some reason did not occur See to me. See cider scene for I more know. details. <laughs> I did. I actually used their map she quite a bit. Plugged. They have a great like location map and it made it really yes. easy to like um decide which ones to stop at. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we went up there. If you know anything about the show, we love our hard cider. I'm a big we sure do. cider snob. One of the the few things I actually drink. Yes. <laughs> Cider and whiskey. That's a yeah. <laughs> so one of the stops, we stayed in Lansing, and one of the stops that we made was at this little memorial for what is still considered the deadliest school massacre in American history, which occurred one fateful day in 1927. Now, this is located in Bath, Michigan, which is about 10 miles north-ish. I think it's kind of northeast of Lansing. And at the time, it was this really tiny town of about 300 people. Originally, there were all of these, because it's a very rural area. It's a lot of farms. There was all Mm -hmm. of these like one-room schoolhouses sort of scattered throughout the area. But all of these were consolidated into one school when the new building was built in 1922 and called the Bath Consolidated School. The school itself had 314 students, most of which were like bussed in from rural farm areas. Very old timey shit. It was like, oh, yes, one school that had, you know, first through eighth grade and into high school, you know, like in one building. Mm hmm. Now, before we get too far, uh, we have to talk about a man named Andrew Philip Keogh. And Keogh was born and raised in Michigan, along with 12 other brothers and sisters. Which I, <laughs> I think about that, and I'm like, a 13-sibling family. Like, I can't even imagine. That's not really a thing anymore. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he went to college for electrical engineering before... He moved to St. Louis to work for some time. There was one incident where Keo fell and landed on his head and was like stuck going in and out of a coma for like two months. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. He like fell off a ladder. And you know what happens to people with brain injuries. Yes. (laughs) There is some things in my research that I saw where they talked about him sort of like checking off most of the things on the psychopathy list. Oh, yeah. So eventually, Keo moves back to Michigan, where he returns to his father's farm. 
And following the death of his mother, Kyo's father actually married a much younger widow. And this is this is what happened. On September 17th, 1911, as his stepmother attempted to light the family's oil stove, it exploded and set her on fire. Kyo threw a bucket of water on her, but the fire was oil-based and his actions spread the flames more rapidly, which engulfed and immolated her body. Bad times. (laughs) Yeah. And she, her injuries were fatal. She died the following day. But some of the neighbors believe that Kyo intentionally caused that explosion to cause his stepmother some harm for some reason. Wasn't totally clear why, but like that was the impression they got. At the age of 40, Kyo married Nellie Price in 1912 and later moved to a farm just outside of Bath. Now, the community itself is like pretty split on how they felt about Kyo. Some people said he was the best neighbor. He had this really sunny disposition and was like super friendly. And there were other people who claimed that he had this explosive temper and was the worst person ever. Okay. Bit of a bipolar situation. Maybe. I did see the same story in a few places where after having a neighbor's dog run onto his property, he shot and killed it because it was on his property and the barking was super annoying. So he just killed the neighbor's dog. Makes total sense. Yeah. There is another story where Keo beat one of his horses to death after it failed to perform to his expectations. Yeah. So that's who we're dealing with here. Either way, Keo was an active member of the community and was elected as a trustee on the school board for which he served three years. And then the community or and then he um, served one year as treasurer. Now, Keo was adamantly against any sort of extra spending for the school, sometimes including just like necessary stuff. For the functioning of a school. Didn't want to spend yep. money on it. There's there's always a bunch. I've worked with a lot of boards in my day. And let me tell you. I yes. don't understand why half the people join a board. If all they want to do is make whatever they're a board for. And not function anymore. Yeah. Libraries, museums, schools. I tell you. Exactly. And this is like a literal like public school. For the kids yep. of the community. Like whatever. <laughs> Whatever, indeed. (laughs) Yeah. He often was arguing for lower taxes, and he really wasn't, like, the easiest person to work with and often voted against the entire board. The biggest fight was against higher property taxes, saying that he was already paying too much for his property taxes. So... Oh, my God. I can't. (laughs) I'm going to read this quote about the tax thing, because, first of all, I... When it comes to, like, finances, I generally have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I, it would just be easier to read this so you can kind of get, get an impression of why he was so angry, okay? Uh-huh. Quote, in 1922, the Bath Township school tax was $12.26 on a $1,000 valuation, with the valuation on Keo's farm being $10,000. In 1923, the school board raised the tax to $18.80 per $1,000 valuation. 
1926, the taxes went up to $19.80 per thousand dollar valuation. So this meant that Keogh's tax liability went from $122.60 in 1922 to $198 in 1926. So that's, and again, this is 1920s. So like, I don't know what the inflation rate is, but that is probably equal to a lot of money at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to add to his distress, he was also notified by the mortgage holder for his property that they were going to begin foreclosure proceedings. And he sort of like... There is definitely, at least in Keo's mind, a connection between this raise in taxes and his foreclosure happening. Gotcha. Like, because the taxes were raised, now I'm losing my home kind of a thing. Mm. Now, 1926 was likely the worst year for Keo. While serving temporarily as the town clerk, Keo was defeated in the election, leaving him bitter towards community members. His wife, Nellie, had fallen chronically ill with what appeared to be tuberculosis, which at the time they had no foreseeable uh, cure for. And I say appears to be tuberculosis because I don't even know how common a, uh, a diagnosis that was at the time. It was never like definitively stated. But a lot of Keo's money was being spent on frequent hospital visits for his wife. In turn, this also means that he stopped making mortgage and homeowners insurance payments on the property. And around this time, neighbors began noticing that he was no longer working on his farm, um, leaving some to speculate that he was planning suicide. He really just like, just said fuck it and stopped. Later, it was found that Keo had like cut all of the wire fences girdled some trees which i don't have you ever heard of girdling trees yeah they use that in a lot of like like eco-terrorism okay (laughs) it's called eco-terrorism i had to look that up because i was not familiar but you basically like strip uh completely strip the bark on one like in the center of a tree and it kills everything above where that bark was stripped Mm -hmm. essentially yeah that's like a tactic used in a lot of Places where they're like, okay, well, you want to, like, cut this forest down while we're going to start doing this to the trees. And, like, technically you can get a tree to come back from that Mm -hmm. uh, if you wrap it in burlap. Um, But most of the time, it's not a very good tactic, but (laughs) it's a tactic. (laughs) So he also cut off all of his grapevine plants and then, like... Okay. (laughs) He, like, cut down all of his grapevine plants and then, like, re-put them back where they were on these stumps so that nobody would notice that they had actually been cut down. So it appeared that he was making all of these preparations for something happening on his property. Now, there isn't a single, like, moment that can be pointed to for sure when Keo began planning his way of getting back at Bath Township. But in mid-1926, he began collecting massive amounts of incendiary explosives and dynamite, both of which at this point in time were commonly used on farms for like various reasons, whether it's helping them get up ground or whatever. It was not uncommon for farmers to be using this uh, type of explosives and dynamite in their their work. Mm -hmm. 
Keo also had regular access to the school, which he took full advantage of. Keo had gone into the school and planted hundreds of pounds of explosives in the basement of the school. Later investigations also found a gas container in the basement, likely with the hopes that it would cause a, uh, a larger explosion. Now, on May 16th, Nellie, who had been in the hospital for her illness, was discharged and sent home. And at some point after that, over the course of two days, she was murdered by Keo, who placed her body into a wheelbarrow and left it in the back of the chicken coop. Yeah. Then on May 18th, explosions went off at Keo's house and farm buildings, sending like a shit ton of like metal shrapnel and stuff into the neighbor's yard. The authorities were notified. They rushed to the scene in hopes of finding survivors. And while they didn't find anybody, they saw Keo leaving the farm in his truck. As he left, he stopped to tell one of the firefighters that they should probably be heading to the school next before he drove off. That's always a good sign. Now, literally, so the explosion at his house happened at approximately 845. Shortly after that, or almost at the same time, the explosion, the hundreds of pounds of dynamite that had been planted in the school went off because the timer had been set for about 845 also. The idea being that all of the rescue efforts would have been headed toward Keo's farm first and gotcha. then to Diversion. the school. Yes. So this explosion at the school sent shockwaves miles away. People thought it was an earthquake. And when re- and when rescuers arrived, the scene proved to be a grisly one. Local author Monty J. Ellsworth described the scene in a 1927 ac- account, quote, There was a pile of children, about five or six under the roof, and some of them had arms sticking out, some had legs, and some just had their heads sticking out. They were unrecognizable because they were covered with dust, plaster, and blood. It's a miracle that many parents didn't lose their minds before the task of getting their children out of the ruins was completed. It was between five and six o'clock that evening before the last child was taken out. Approximately a half hour after the explosion, Keo arrived at the school in his truck. And then as he was kind of like surveying the scene that was happening, he noticed the superintendent was attempting to help in the rescue effort and like called him over to the truck. At that point, Keo stepped out of his truck with a rifle that he had brought with him, took aim and fired at the truck, which had also been packed with dynamite and shrapnel. The truck exploded. Yes. Yeah. He truly was just out for complete destruction. Blood. Yeah. Yeah. The truck exploded, killing the superintendent and two other bystanders along with Keo himself. At the end of his rampage, Keo had killed a total of 44 people, 38 of which were students at the school. While this wasn't the first bombing in American history, it was certainly the most deadly at the time that it had happened. And it's still the worst school massacre in American history uh, as far as the number of people that died. The investigations that followed turned up the charred bodies, the charred body of Keo's wife, 
So when he had placed her corpse in the chicken coop, he had done so intentionally knowing that those buildings on the farm property were going to be blown up and hoping to destroy her body in the process. Gotcha. That's a thing. They also discovered a sign that had been left on the property. It was like hung up on a fence on the outside of the property that simply said, criminals are made, not born. I was going to say, is it a don't tread on me flag? (laughs) Oh, my God. Basically. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to Illinois, folks. (laughs) (laughs) An inquest that was set up following the disaster, found Keo to be of sound mind and body when he planned and executed the bombings, which I think made some people uneasy because it's easier to think like somebody who is crazy would do this, right? Rather than... Yeah, exactly. He was totally thinking rationally when he planned and... Because this was like months of collecting dynamite and planning how to do this. Fucking nuts. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. It definitely sounds like a, it's like one of these instances where something just snapped. Like that was the, it sort of reminds me of that case where the guy built the, the like bulletproof tank in Alaska. Oh yeah, the bolt, the, yeah, the kill dozer. The kill dozer, yes. Where mm-hmm. all of a sudden something snapped and he just like started prepping to do this, you know, massive takedown of this town, right? It's kind of similar to that. Now, unfortunately, the story of the bath explosion quickly fell out of the news because two days after it had happened, Charles Lindbergh's first ever nonstop transatlantic flight was successfully completed, which... Which is like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah. Who cares? (laughs) And because at the time, like, we did not have the same access to news and like reporting it across the country was a little bit more complicated the story of the bath explosion was kind of lost to time yeah this was the first time that i'd ever heard of it when we were kind of like looking at places to go when we were up in michigan and i thought this sounds interesting we should go here because of course i would but i had before (laughs) that i had never never heard of it I actually did hear about it, but that's because I fell into a rabbit hole when I, every once in a while, I go back and watch this documentary about Columbine, mm. and and they uh, there's like a lot of stuff that gets suggested in it, and there was uh, something another documentary suggested about the the worst like school disasters in history. Yeah, so yeah. I did hear about it, but it is it is like one of the ones that's more like. It's not directly, like, necessarily targeted at the school. It's more targeted at the broad sweeping community. (laughs) Right, right. And for sure was, like, in direct response to these taxes being levied as a part of the school, because the school board was the one setting the tax rate. Right. So, yeah, definitely less about, like, the actual students at the school and more a general statement. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say the community pulled together and received an outpouring of support from across the country. Within a year, the school was rebuilt on the same site with the original that's cupola <laughs> from the first school. Oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, please build a school on the haunted graves of our children. 
Yeah, I mean, here, I'll show you a picture of what the building looked like. So this is what the the building looked like after the explosion. Like this. Yeah. But this cupola up here managed to survive. And they put it on top of of the new building, um, which looked like this. Looks like it's a sturdier um, building material as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think the original was large. Well, there's some brick in there. That's not, I mean, yeah, probably sturdier afterwards, though. But, I mean, it just totally destroyed that whole section. Yeah. So the school was rebuilt on the same site with the original cupola from the the same building. And it stayed there until 1970 when it was torn down. And in its place, the Bath Township built a memorial park where the original cupola still stands. So that is actually where Tiff and I went is to this little, it's not very big. And I imagine it's not the whole property where the school building was at. And there's like a little like veterans memorial towards the front of it. But when you go, it's a little eerie because it is just a grassy park. There's like a, um, not a gazebo, but like a, you know, one of the bigger picnic areas, covered picnic areas. Off to one side, but right in the middle, there's like a path that goes down the middle and the original cupola is just sitting in this like brick circle with some plaques and things around it. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. (laughs) Took me down this rabbit hole of a story I'd never heard before. It seems recently I'm like finding all this inspiration from my uh, real life uh, things just popping up, but... That is the story of the bath school disaster. It's crazy. Before you decide to bomb some buildings, first of all, don't. <laughs> um, but maybe <sighs> listen to this podcast. Need an escape? Vanish into the depths of a magic forest. Head out on an interstellar repair mission. Travel back in time to change the future. Explore inside someone or something else. Meet dragons, werewolves, birds, bears, aliens, mermen, and a man with a fishbowl for a head. All in 10 minutes or less every week. Tune in to 600 Second Saga for your weekly science fiction and fantasy escape. Well, that has been our episode. (laughs) It has. (laughs) That's been it. Kaboom. Kaboom. Boom shakalaka, as they say in all the 90s 90s video games. We, you've been hearing us talk about uh, the upcoming Elgin Fringe Festival that we're going to be be doing in September. In the time period, <laughs> yes, we're still waiting on some details. I believe. Yes, <laughs> we are. <laughs> but as soon as we know anything, you'll know anything. So look for that on our social media. As soon as we hear yes. something, we will let you know. The one thing you can do is get a button right away, like purchase your button. Yes. Because you can't get in anywhere without a button. Yes. And then keep an eye out for the ticket releases, which should be very, very soon. Yes, 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 yes. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more like this, you can go to badtastepodcast.com where we have all of our episodes up as well as links to our merch and donate pages if you want to support the show. Support the show. (laughs) 
If you want to support that's, the show. That's our Midwestern accents. Yeah. <laughs> it's just coming out all over the place. Mm-hmm. We've got like t-shirts and bags and stuff up there. There's something, a little something for everybody. Uh, as well as our Patreon. And that's like kind of it, I think. Yeah. Kind of is it. <laughs> well, cool. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Adios. Goodbye. Explosions. Come out. Come out. Smash. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another.